Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Little Falls is a small town of 8,000, smack dab in the middle of Minnesota, home of famous aviator Charles Lindbergh, who at the age of 25 flew the first solo nonstop transatlantic flight from New York to Paris. People choose to live in Little Falls for its gentle pace. It lies alongside the Mississippi River and is surrounded by scenic forests and majestic sunsets. A safe place for its residents to put down roots. Exactly what Byron Smith had in mind when he retired at 58 and moved to Little Falls. Never married, he spent two decades working for the State Department as a security engineer and was looking forward to relaxing in the idyllic small town. Byron received top-secret security clearance and was highly trained to conduct security assessments and surveillance countermeasures to deter terrorism and technical espionage. He traveled the world working for the U.S. government from Beijing to Bangkok and to Cairo and Egypt. Just outside the city limits, Byron settled into a red brick house with white trim and shutters. Hidden from the road down a long driveway, it was surrounded by tall trees. His backyard slipped down to the Mississippi River. Byron kept himself and sometimes target practice with his guns, something that annoyed the neighbors. Cousins Haley Kiefer and Nick Brady called Little Falls home. Haley was a junior at Little Falls High School. She was a happy person, upbeat and well-liked, with a large white smile. Her long brown hair graced with blonde streaks. She was athletic and competitive. However, she also had her demons and struggled with drug addiction and had gone for treatment a number of times. Nick also attended Little Falls High School. His dirty frame topped off with a mop of short, dark hair. He had a striking smile, was outgoing, and liked to joke around. He, too, was athletic, and after school, made good money working in his father's tree-trimming business. Growing up, Nick attended church and a Baptist Christian school. He spent time at his grandparents, Stephen and Bonnie's home. Over the years, they fostered many children, and they told Care 11 News that some were more difficult than others. We probably had 150 kids come through our home in 28 years, and Nick was in our home all the time, side by side with kids that had problems and were hurting, and he frequently saw kids steal. In 2011, burglaries in the small town surpassed 30. Targets were usually prescription pills and small electronics. In 2012, 
the break-ins continued, and Haley and Nick were the source of many of the crimes. The Star Tribune reported that, by fall, the police and sheriff's office had dealt with Haley 19 times for traffic stops, suspicious activity, or theft, and that they had had similar contact with Nick as well. What no one knew was that Haley and Nick had teamed up together. Over the last few years, Byron's home had been broken into six times. He didn't report all of them. Then, on October 27th, Nick kicked in a panel of his basement door and stole $10,000 worth of guns, including a shotgun and rifle, a $3,000 camera, and $500 in cash. This time, Byron reported the theft to the local sheriff's office. Nick had left a shoe print on the door, but police were not able to determine who the shoe print matched. It wasn't long before Nick was back again. This time, he broke into Byron's garage and stole a chainsaw, among other items. Byron was extremely security conscious. After all, he'd been trained to detect possible threats. He suspected the burglar might be a neighbor, so he installed a video security system on the outside of his home. In mid-November, Richard Johnson, a Little Falls retired high school teacher, had left for a vacation. While he was gone, Haley and Nick snuck up the driveway of his stately Tudor-style home. They went to the deck with its French doors and smashed the glass. They rummaged through drawers and cupboards and stole coins and prescription medication. It wasn't discovered until Sunday, November 18th, when her friend checked on his house and contacted police. Three days later, it was Thanksgiving, and Haley and Nick were going to their grandparents. But first, they had plans to break into Byron's again. Perhaps Haley was looking for prescription drugs, or perhaps Nick just liked the thrill. He certainly didn't need the money. Byron was frustrated with the break-ins, and he had become fearful and was having trouble sleeping. He had a sinking feeling his home was going to be broken into again, and that whoever had stolen his guns would be back, and this time they might be armed. Living in fear, he began to carry a gun around with him in his own home. Court records indicated that at 10.30 a.m., he spoke to one of his neighbors, William Anderson, and told him that he suspected another one of his neighbors was the thief. Shortly after, he backed his car down the driveway, drove it a few blocks, and parked it in front of the home of two state troopers. He walked back along the river and entered his home through his backyard at 11.45 a.m. Fifteen minutes later, Byron went down to his basement he walked down the carpeted stairs. A railing hugged the wall, while the other side, it opened up to a rec room. A room 
where he'd set up a wooden table and a sofa. Papers covered the tabletop, while a blue Tiffany lamp set off to the side. At the far end of the room, in the corners, stood two tall industrial-looking metal cabinets. In between them sat a low wood cabinet with a TV and large speakers. Directly in front was a brown upholstered recliner. Between the table and the TV stood tall bookcases stuffed with books. The bookcases jutted out from the wall about three feet and formed two rows perpendicular to each other. In between them sat a burgundy wing-back chair with a tall lamp perched behind it. The perfect little nook to read a book. Byron turned on a digital audio recorder, then grabbed a book, a water bottle, and a few snack bars, and settled in to the burgundy chair. Nestled in between the bookcases, he faced the stairs and waited. It didn't take long, maybe 30 minutes, before he heard doorknobs rattling. Nick was disappointed to find them locked. He peeked in the windows as he walked around the house. Byron spotted his silhouette through the basement window. Then he heard Nick walk across the deck. The next thing he heard was Nick using a lead pipe to smash the bedroom window. Inside, shards of glass landed on the desk. Nick crawled in and around the bed and into the hallway. He stepped into the staircase leading to the basement. Byron watched, silent and still. His nine-shot revolver was holstered in his belt clip. He reached beside him for his loaded Mini-14 rifle. Then Nick took another step, and another. Byron could see his feet, then his knees, then his hips. He was halfway down the stairs. It was time. Byron pulled the trigger. The bullet ripped in to his left hip. His gun was still raised, and within seconds, he shot again, hitting Nick in the left shoulder. He fell down the stairs, leaving his shoes behind as he landed on the basement floor. Nick raised his hand just as Byron fired a third bullet. It went through his hand before hitting him on the right side of his head. Byron told Nick, you're dead. Byron picked up his shoes and placed them under his chair. He grabbed a tarp and placed Nick's body on it and dragged him to his workshop in the next room. He reloaded his rifle, sat back down in the chair, and waited. Eight minutes later, Haley entered the house. She tiptoed to the basement stairs and called out in a quiet whisper, Nick! She heard nothing. She started down the stairs and called out again, Nick! 
First Byron saw her feet, then her knees, then her hips. He fired the rifle. The bullet ripped through her hip. Haley tumbled down the steps. Byron went to fire again, but the rifle jammed. He told her, sorry about that. He thought Haley let out a short laugh before she stated, Oh my God. Byron was furious. He pulled the revolver from his holster and fired. Haley screamed. He shot her again and again and told her, You're dying. She screamed again. He shot her a fifth time under the chin. Finally, she was dead, or so he thought. He dragged Haley into the workshop and placed her on top of Nick. But then he noticed she was gasping. He thought he couldn't leave her to suffer and shot her a sixth time. Nick was 17. Haley had just turned 18. The snow was coming down hard and the roads were slippery. When Haley and Nick didn't arrive at their grandparents, the family called and texted them. When there was no answer, they feared they may have gotten into an accident or slid off the road into a ditch and went out looking for them. Byron did not call 911. He stayed in his home and left his audio recorder going. He rambled on, almost whispering, I am not a bleeding heart liberal. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess. In some tiny little respect, I was doing my civic duty. If the law enforcement system couldn't handle it, I had to do it. It's a sucker shot. People going down strange stairs naturally watch the steps. And he went on to say, I don't see them as human. This bitch was going to go through her life destroying things for other people. Thieving, robbing, and drug use. It's all fun, cool, exciting. It's highly profitable until you go too far and somebody kills you. And he rambled on. Then they take slice after slice out of me. $1,000 slice, $10,000 slice. And if I gather enough evidence, they might be prosecuted. If it goes to court, they might be found guilty. They might spend six months, two years in jail, and then they're out, and they need money worse than ever, and they're filled with revenge. I cannot live a life like that, I refuse to live with that level of fear in my life. For hours, Byron sat and contemplated what he should do. He didn't want to call the police yet and ruin their holiday. He thought there was a good chance that Haley's parents might come knocking and bring a gun. At some point, he got up and checked the shoes that Nick and Haley were wearing to see if they matched the treadmark on his door. 
He ruled out Haley, but Nick's were a possibility. The Duluth News Tribune reported that later that night, he called his brother Bruce, who was four states away, and he told him, I need you up here now. Byron unscrewed the light bulbs and spent the night in the basement, waiting for Haley's father, waiting for something to happen, too afraid to move. The next morning, Byron realized that waiting any longer would change nothing. He called his neighbor William and asked him to find him a lawyer. He called back again later and told him that he solved the break-ins in the neighborhood and asked him to contact the sheriff's department. When deputies arrived, Byron came out of the house with his hands raised. They arrested him and took him to the department for questioning. He agreed to give a DNA sample and volunteered to provide his fingerprints. He even told deputies how to access the video surveillance system. He admitted that he shot Nick and Haley before seeing their hands, that he wasn't looking at their hands and didn't know if they had a gun. He believed they were the thieves that had stolen his guns and that it was possible they would shoot him with his own gun. He felt that they were dangerous and he couldn't wait for them to pull out a weapon. He acknowledged that he'd shot them more times than what was needed to stop them, but said that he feared for his life. Deputies searched the car Nick and Haley used and discovered six bottles of prescription medication. The name on the label was Richard Johnson, the retired schoolteacher. 64-year-old Byron was initially charged with two counts of second-degree murder. The charges were later upgraded to first-degree premeditated murder. A website that was set up to raise funds for his defense raised only $50. On Sunday, 200 mourners attended a vigil at Little Falls High School to remember their classmates. Their friends wondered how they could have ended up dead in a basement. That same day, Bruce arrived at his brother's home, but it was too late. He was behind bars. A sign that read Keep Out had been erected at the bottom of the driveway. Nick's older sister, Crystal, walked past the sign to see the house where she lost her brother. She fought at Bruce and with tears spilling from her eyes, she told him, they were 17 and 18 years old, and they didn't need to die. Bruce responded with, that all depends on your perspective. 500 friends, classmates, and family members attended their funeral. Outside sat two white hearses, side by side. The law in Minnesota states a homeowner has the right to use force to resist an assault or protect property, but the force must be reasonable. And a homeowner has the right to use deadly force if it is necessary to prevent death or great bodily harm 
or prevent the commission of a felony in your home. Sheriff Michelle Wetzel stated, What happened in this case, though, is it went further than that. The law doesn't permit you to execute somebody once the threat is gone. The law also requires the person who uses deadly force to notify law enforcement and attempt to render aid where possible. We received no call from Mr. Smith at any point after this incident occurred. The medical examiner revealed that Nick had no drugs or alcohol in his system, but that Haley had marijuana and cough medicine, and that the level of cough medicine was high enough to make her intoxicated and perhaps even hallucinate. A year and a half later, in April 2014, Byron claimed self-defense at his trial. The jury took only three hours of deliberation to find him guilty on all counts and sentenced him to life in prison without parole, both sentences to be served concurrently. His lawyers appealed and lost. Nick and Haley's families requested restitution from Byron for the cost of their headstones. The court denied the request. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Michelle Martinko. On a cold December night, Michelle went Christmas shopping. She was behind the steering wheel when Jerry ripped open the door. Michelle fought for her life. Her brave actions brought her killer to justice 39 years after her murder. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.